And my sermon just brought tears to your eyes. He said, I didn't even listen to your sermon. <laughs> I said, well, then why were you crying? He said, I was looking around, how many Christians you got over here? And we have eight in Caracas, a city of four million people. Welcome back to another episode of Meet the Ministers. I'm your host, Kev McDonald, joined always by Alec Robson. Hey, how are you doing today? Doing well yourself? I'm uh, doing great. It's another beautiful day here in Denver and uh, enjoying the, the sunny day. <laughs> yeah, it, love the sun. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was so cold uh, these past couple of days up in Woodland Park. I mean, it's just freezing, single digits into the negatives and just being down where it gets to 60 degrees. Yeah. It's like summertime. It is nice to drive down here to the lowlands. <laughs> right. I got invited up to go skiing and decided, no, nah, I've done enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> we have a treat for you today. We have Mr. Bob Brown. Mr. Brown was baptized in 1971 in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Pascagoula. Pascagoula, yeah. Mississippi. Perfect. Bob entered into ministry the following Wednesday after his baptism. <laughs> Mr. Brown has been serving since he was 17. Mr. Brown graduated from Freed Hardeman with an associate's and a certificate in Bible. Mr. Brown has served as a full-time missionary in the Caribbean, Trinidad, and Caracas. Thank you, Mr. Brown, for joining us today. We are very excited to hear your story. Oh, it's a joy to be with you and to be able to share it with you because it's uh, been a delight. God has been so gracious to me and my family We've been blessed to be a part of something that uh, anybody that's a Christian would enjoy, and uh, glad to share it with you. Awesome. Let's go ahead and jump right in. How were you brought up? I was brought up in the Presbyterian Church and had uh, a grandmother that was very devout in that faith, and uh, my father had been told to go to church and went to church, but he wasn't all that committed. My mother had been a Baptist at one time, but she wasn't very involved either and so forth. But uh, while I was in high school, I made contact with some people that were members of the church and began to ask questions. And uh, I realized I need to talk to Reverend Snyder, as he was known, (laughs) and find out uh, about some of these things they're telling me. And uh, I started talking to him and uh, uh, he respected me. His son was one of my best friends. And uh, he said that, well, uh, yeah, it is true that baptism was by immersion in the first century and even admitted ultimately that it was for the remission of sins and all of these things. And that the church used to take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week of every week. And uh, I, I began to ask, but why do we not do that? And he says, well, we have synods and councils and there's decisions that are made by leaders in our church. And uh, I said, and who gave you the authority to do that? <laughs> and my dad had always given me a lot of good fatherly advice, like don't accept any wooden nickels. Mm-hmm. Nickels are supposed to be made out of nickel, not out of wood. <laughs> and so uh, I, the more I heard coming back from the man who had been our leader in our church, uh, I realized this is all wooden nickels. <laughs> <laughs> and, I did, and my dad knew it, and we talked. 
And uh, he tried to get me to go ahead and become a full-fledged member of the denomination. And I, I told him, I said, Dad, I just really can't because of, you know, what I've learned. And that was in short order. That didn't take very long at all. And uh, he said, well, if you get baptized in that church, he, he thought it was a holy roller church. And he said, if you get baptized with those holy rollers, uh, you're just going to have to leave my house. Mm-hmm. So that was a tough decision. And I remember the Sunday that I was listening to the invitation song thinking, I really need to do something about this. And so I went forward, and the preacher hardly even knew me. I had friends there, like I said, that studied with me. And I, be- I became a Christian that very day. I got baptized, and uh, Percy Keene, who was the preacher, was about half my size. And uh, I think I mostly baptized myself, but uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't drown. <laughs> and uh, when I came out of the water, he handed me a towel, and I dried off everything except my hair. And he said, uh, you didn't dry your hair. I said, I can't. And I've, uh, give me my Bible that's over there. I've got to go because I knew that the only way I'd be able to let my dad know was to let him see for himself and not have to verbalize it. Mm-hmm. So I went home with wet hair and a Bible in my hand. My dad said, oh, you got baptized, right? And so pack up and leave. Mm-hmm. And that, that happened that day. Wow. And uh, How old you, were you at this time? 17. 17. And you know where I went. Uh, where would anybody go? That guy that baptized me. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went down to Percy's house, and my dad called up threatening to whip him. And uh, Percy offered to go down and let him do it. But, uh, <laughs> and so uh, that was the, you know, the end of that conflict because he got over it. My mom cried enough the first night I was able to go back home the next day. Okay. But um, it was never the same. He let me back in the house, but not back in his heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, before I forget it and let this go by, I need to mention that 21 years later, my dad had MS and couldn't hardly walk, but he drug himself all the way up to the baptistry uh, with a walker. Just It was physically straining on him. And uh, I told him, I said, well, you can't go up these stairs into where the baptistry is. I'll have to take you up there in my arms. And I picked him up. And started up the steps. And when I got to the top, I told him, I, I stopped and I said, Dad, 21 years ago, you threw me out of the house because I became a Christian. And now 21 years later, I'm going to throw you into this baptistry <laughs> so that you can become a Christian too. Amen. And he did. Amen. And Amen. I was wondering, you know, if he would be a faithful Christian. And a short time after, he didn't have a lot of money and he was ill. And, uh, they built a annex onto the church building, a little Sunday school annex, and he gave most of the money for that. And he stayed faithful until his death. And I was really, really, really excited about that. But I, I went back, like you mentioned, on Wednesday night after getting baptized on Sunday and thrown out of the house and then let back in on Monday. <laughs> and uh, the preacher, Percy Keene, who later became a teacher at the School of Preaching down in West Monroe, Louisiana, uh, he said, uh, well, uh, Bobby Brown's going to be leading the song service tonight. And I thought, I don't know any of the songs this church sings. <laughs> I found out later they sang Blessed Assurance, and that was in our songbook down to Presbyterian Church previously. <laughs> but that was not what they asked for. I said, do you have something you'd like me to lead? And uh, I looked at it, didn't recognize it, and didn't know what I was going to do. I just felt foolish standing up in front of the congregation, but not able to do anything. And then... Uh, Solution, 
Percy started singing, and all I had to do was follow. Mm -hmm. But I was the leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of times in my life that's been the case. I was the leader, but somebody else gave me the guidance that I needed to be able to do the job, and I did. And uh, I thank God for those people, including Percy King, He's who your, has now gone on to his own reward. He was your first mentor? Oh, yeah. It really was. He took me by the hand, put me in his car, drove me up to Freed Hardeman University, and introduced me to Brother Dixon, H.A. Dixon, uh, we're really well-known a, a generation ago. And uh, also... Dean Gardner, who was the one who had to approve the money that they were going to have to give me to let me go to school there, and Percy recommended me. They 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 put me in <laughs> in the school, and I was asked, "Do you, do you mind raking leaves, cleaning bathrooms, and stuff like that?" I said, "Oh no, I love doing that. That's great." <laughs> and that's how I went to Freed Hardeman. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget Sister Witt was her name, and her husband was the uh, tennis coach on, uh, there at that school, and I played tennis and had done really well in the state of Mississippi and so forth. And uh, I remember I got to her desk, and she was the one collecting the money, and she said, uh, you want to pay with cash, check, credit card. I didn't even know what a credit card was. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you how old I am anyway. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I told her I don't have any of that. And she says, well, son, how do you plan to go to school here? I said, uh, well, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> my preacher brought me up here, and I met you know, the, the president and the vice president, and I met the uh, bursar, and I don't know. And uh, so she said, well, you got to pay for it somehow, and uh, you're going to speak to the dean. So she put me back with Dean Gardner, and uh, he said, okay, uh, you'll have to get the president's agreement. H.A. Dixon agreed. But he told me, he said, son, you're not the first young idiot that came through here expecting to be covered uh, and but you're going to work a lot and you're going to have to you know cooperate with us and uh but i'll i'll tell sister witt to let you register and that's how i started my life there and so many people were good to me wonderful to me uh there at free uh, i was on my own and so they let me go to school and that's how i, I got into the first stage of ministry yeah Second part of that story is that one of the guys from Pascagoula, Mississippi, that was an electrician, decided he wanted to be a preacher so he could make money and had money. And uh, not a lot, but he would go home for Christmas and holidays and so forth and work. And uh, they would let him go into the shipyard where he had been an electrician and let him earn some money and so forth. And he told me uh, the first Christmas I was there at free, he said, uh, the little country church I preach for, uh, Silver Springs, uh, you're, you're going to be the preacher for the time I'm gone. And I said, I, I don't preach. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anything about that, you know. Yeah. And uh, he says, well, you've had some Bible courses here now, one semester, so you're ready. And I thought, oh, boy, I think I had 10 pages of uh, notes. I went through it in about uh, 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and, then, and then I thought, that's not long enough, looking at the clock on the wall that all the churches of Christ used to have. And I said, uh, uh, I, I, I think I've got a problem here. What am I going to do? So I said, and in conclusion, and I repeated it. 
So that gave me that gave me twenty minutes. That's long enough for a sermon. And uh, I couldn't believe it when Jerry told me later they really liked you. They liked your sermon, and they want you to come back. And they want every time I'm gone, you know, to work on the side somewhere uh, to pay for my schooling. You'll be able to go out there, and they will pay you something too. And I, well, that's good. At least you need gas money. Yep. And uh, had an old beat up car. I paid fifty dollars for. So it, it would run, yep. and I would get out there and preach. And that, I started out my ministry uh, in a kind of a forced situation, but very happy that they liked what I did and glad to come back if they can tolerate it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I got started. Yep. Where did you go for your first full-time pulpit ministry? Well, uh, full-time for the summer. Okay. Uh, you probably heard of uh, G.K. Wallace has more printed debates than any preacher in the Church of Christ ever, uh, and uh, I was in his class, and he he liked me. Uh, I, I thank God for all these people that put up with me, liked me, and helped me. But uh, he he called me and said, "I want you to go over to uh, Monroe, Louisiana, to the Jackson Street Congregation, and preach over there." because their preacher's going to have to have cataract surgery this summer. And, they, you know, I think you're the person to go. I said, I've only had Life of Christ in the book of Acts. He said, well, just preach that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I, all right. And I remember I, I had to do, I counted it. I had 28 messages I had to have ready for that summer. And I went through it. And it turned out that there was a lot of problems in that congregation, serious problems. And uh, I had to take it on, and I did. And I preached to the whole church about the problems that they were having. Social drinking, you know, kids having sex out of marriage, and all kinds of things. And then you wondered why you look at their parents, and they're going out partying on weekends too. And the church was just really, really in bad shape. And so I began to ask brethren uh, all over the brotherhood, what can I say? Well, and I got lots of help from preachers that were experienced. They sent me materials. I prepared a lesson. And uh, I had the preacher call me in, the one who was having the surgery and out for the summer. And uh, he said he used to wear a, a, kind of like a dealer's cap with a green little visor on the front. and yeah. He would chew cigars. He used to smoke, and he quit smoking because he didn't think preachers ought to smoke, so he was chewing cigars and spitting into a can, you know. And I put up with a lot of stuff like that, but this was a large congregation. Uh, we had about 400 members, you know, and I felt so immature and not ready for that challenge. But I knew I needed to do it. And uh, he told me, he said, I understand you're going to be talking about social drinking and and dancing and about sex out of marriage and stuff like that. And I said, well, yes, sir, I have been gathering material on that. And he, he bowed his head and he said, son, I really like you. <laughs> and listen to all I'm getting ready to say so that you don't turn me off prematurely here. He leaned down, got right in my face and said, boy, I like you a lot, but I think you're going to make an ass out of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit reveals everything that we need to say, but I, I think God helped me because I looked back at him and seriously I said, I think you're right, 
But if I'm going to make an ass out of myself, I hope I'm going to be like Balaam's ass <laughs> and tell the truth. Yep. That's right. He said, I can't argue with that. Yep. And he was, he was a scholar, a Bible scholar. And so I got up on Sunday morning, started my sermon. Uh, I memorized the introduction, and I can remember getting up and saying, Immorality has marched triumphantly across our nation with its steel feet, crushing every virtue that we've ever known. And uh, when I said that and then got into a sentence or two more, one of the ladies just cackled, and several of the other members laughed. And we lost six families out of that weekend, uh, but they were all the ones involved in all the problems. And so I felt like I did the right thing. And uh, the mayor of the city um, got up, and, you know, the Howard brothers, Alton wrote the song books we all use. Jack was the mayor of the city, and he got him and said, some of y'all are probably getting ready to crucify this young man as soon as we get out of here today. He said, but I want you to know as your mayor, as well as your brother in Christ, everything that he told you about what we're doing and what's happening here is true, and you need to listen to him. And if, he, and if he's not right, then tell me where are all our kids that are in the 20s and 30s that are not here anymore. He says, uh, you, need to, you need to listen to him. Well, he was an elder, and that kind of, upset the other people, and a lot of them left. And then I had an invitation from the College Avenue Church the next weekend. They wanted to know when I could come and preach that same sermon. They said, we've got some other families that we need to deal with. And so. Those same families probably. Yeah. <laughs> but when, when, I, when I was at the very end uh, talking to some of the people, I had one guy come up angry, and he said, uh, I am very upset with you, you know, chewing me out. Mm-hmm. And I said, why? Because of what you said, you know. And then my daughter came forward, and, uh, and everybody's going to think she's a prostitute or something. And I said, she's not. But I think you need to sit down and talk to her, brother. She thinks she's pregnant. And that was the kind of experience I had as a teenager in Monroe, Louisiana, well, then West Monroe, Louisiana, which all of you heard about and know about, they, they wanted me to go over there and preach over there. I got a lot of experience that summer that I never expected to get. So then I went on uh, back to school, finished up my two years of study there, and then went into a third-year Bible program that they had because too many people went out after just two years, mostly just your basic courses, English, you know, and history and th- math and uh, so I, a lot of them went out and just ruined churches because they didn't, didn't have really the biblical knowledge. And so they started a third year program. that was intense and I decided to stay there and go through that. And I did that. And I went through the third year program. Uh, as a matter of fact, the guys that were graduating from the second year, you know, uh, and had gone through the third year and were getting their diplomas at that time for the third year certificate, uh, which would entitle you to go to almost any university in the Churches of Christ at that time. Everybody wanted those Freed Hardeman boys, you know. And so uh, uh, I had the third class, third-year class, that was leaving pay all my tuition for the next year. The students did it. Wow. They wow. didn't build a sidewalk uh, or a bench or 
paint a building or something, they, they gave me the money I needed to go to my third-year program. After three years, I went down to Georgia and started preaching down there, and that was my first real legitimate full-time ministry. And I stayed there nine months, and uh, I think that last sermon I preached on uh, uh, five ways to go to hell probably <laughs> was the, the last that straw. was the last straw <laughs> and, and i was i was told i could stay there and i could stay in the preacher's house but i wouldn't get any more money <laughs> uh, and so i had a church in alabama that was interested in taking me in and they've been asking me to resign in georgia and come down there and so i i, I went to Fairhope, alabama and stayed there for over two years uh, and had a wonderful ministry. We had about 75 people that responded to the gospel while I was there. And I went back over to, to go to school some more since I still didn't have a BA and uh, studied speech pathology in the University of South Alabama and uh, got that taken care of. But uh, then I was one day sitting in my office, had my feet up on my desk, reading the gospel advocate again, and got back to that section where they advertise that a preacher's need here or something. It was, you know, help us in some project. Or, and I realized uh, there's this little article that says a missionary is needed in the Caribbean. Well, I knew VP Black and Mobile and others had gone down and came back and said, it's a wonderful place to preach the gospel. The people in the Caribbean are just so open to receiving the message. And uh, so... I thought, what's wrong? Why didn't somebody grab this up real quick? And I kept seeing it month after month. I'd see that article. After about the third time to read it, I thought to myself, well, that, that's, that's pitiful because it, well, I didn't want some of those guys that were mission students preparing to go to the foreign fields. Why, why didn't one of those grab this up? And I realized because they're probably sitting at their desk with their feet up on it and reading <laughs> this same magazine I'm reading and thinking somebody should do something about that. So I called up an elder in Chattanooga to Brainerd uh, Road Congregation and told him, I said, uh, uh, I saw that article and I've seen it over and over again and I think I may be the man you're looking for. And so the answer came back, I know you are. Uh, and that was Brother Kelly, last name Kelly. And uh, I thought, uh, okay, well, you don't know me. And he says, no, but everybody else wants to know all the benefits and how long they got to stay. And, and you're the first person who's called up and said, somebody needs to go down and do something about this. And I'm the, I think I'm the man for the job. I, he says, I know you are. Come to Chattanooga. Went to Chattanooga, met them. They sent me down a survey trip. And uh, I could see the potential there. And so I came back to the States and told them I would take the job. And I started working in the islands of the Caribbean. Well, by that time, I definitely was a full-time preacher yeah, <laughs> and supported by the Brainerd Road Congregation. Now a missionary, though, right? Yeah, I became a missionary. And so I uh, preached the gospel with all my heart. And uh, we started uh, uh, the work in 13 different island nations. Some of them I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. You've heard it, maybe heard of St. Vincent, but you've got Grenada and Barbados and Dominica and all of those islands, Trinidad and Tobago. And so I moved into the facility that the church owned on the island of St. Vincent and began to preach the gospel there. As a result, we had uh, a lot of conversions. I mean, just a lot. And I learned a lot from the preachers there. 
the young black preachers who are sharp. Uh, they, they were ready to go. And I learned, uh, for instance, I thought to myself, they preach so basic lessons. They, they don't wax an elephant, as we used to say, <laughs> you know. They don't say the same sermon and then repeat it again. <laughs> no, they don't do that. They, they weren't doing anything like that at all. So I thought, you know, but, but their message is strong, basic, but strong. And so I thought, I'm going to try this back in the States. And uh, the same sermons that I was preaching under a house where the kids would come in and sit on a pig to listen to me preach and where the adults would just adore me for having come and uh, obeying the gospel just one after the other, I mean hundreds. And um, I went back to the States and I thought, I'm just going to preach sermons like this in some of these lectureships I get invited to where people think, oh, the missionaries here. And, uh, I found out that, uh, and not to insult anybody here in the States, but the people here in the States were about as ignorant as the ones I was preaching to under the house with the pig. <laughs> and that they really appreciated simple, basic lessons, straightforward in my delivery, uh, telling it as it is, uh, sort of like I did when I talked about those five easy ways to go to hell and things like that. You know, I went back to that style, and all of a sudden, uh, I got a lot of opportunities to preach everywhere uh, in the States as well as down there. Uh, people just love simple gospel preaching, and when it's got the basic roots of human nature, it, it works. And uh, so the church was planted in about 13 nations at that time while I was there. We, we, I'd go into the major cities. There was always a capital city. In St. Vincent, it was Kingston, and I'd, I would just preach and um, then I would let the people that I converted go out into the interior to the little villages where the pigs are under the house and continue. And I continue to preach to pigs as well as people, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but more people than pigs. And uh, so it turned out to be uh, a real good experience. And uh, we had churches started everywhere. But there was an island down in the south part of the Caribbean where a missionary had been on St. Vincent before me, had uh, gone out and baptized about six or seven people on the island of Trinidad. And all of them were from the Hindu faith. And so uh, I figured I'd better go visit the brethren. They weren't worshiping. They're, the whole thing had collapsed. And I uh, was able to revive that just in a two-week visit. And then I realized there were a lot of people that wanted to study a lot. So I went back and went back. And uh, all of a sudden, man, the church in Trinidad became huge overnight. And we had... Um, a total of 5,000 baptisms in five and a half years. And you can imagine how elated I was. We had the Pan American Lectureship, which normally amounted to 100 North Americans coming down to Latin America or to the Caribbean. And uh, being the core of the audience uh, with a few natives in there so they could see what the natives look like. And... Uh, Man, and we had the, uh, the lectureship in the Hilton Hotel uh, at Trinidad, and, and uh, we had 1,100 people. And the 100 were the ones that were the visitors from the States. Wow. The 1,000 that surrounded them 
singing like you cannot imagine. The Caribbean just it's just it's just given to music. Oh, they were so good, and uh, the people loved it and got behind my work, and uh, I stayed there for just a short time in Trinidad. Uh, and uh, we 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 saw the work grow in the rest of the Caribbean. As uh, you know, I continued to visit the other islands, but uh, the work in Trinidad and Tobago, I was given a chance to have a radio program on one on one station, then on another, and then they asked me to go on TV, the only one channel they had in the island, and be a preacher every Sunday morning there. And so I and then the newspapers were open to me. And I could call up the TV station and say, Muhammad, who was a Muslim, I've got a great visitor coming into the island, and I want to put him on today if I can. Are you going to do the uh, panorama news today? Yeah, I'm up. Okay, well, I want to put him on there. Is he worth interviewing? I said, oh, yeah, he's an exciting person. Let's do it. And so uh, they would say, well, come on in. Be here at this time, and we'll put you on. And uh, well, Bob's got a friend here today, and, he, and we'd do it. We would do it, and so many people became Christians. It was just unbelievable. So, well, now I want to ask: Were they English speaking, or did you have translators? Oh, they were English speaking. Yeah, I didn't okay. speak Spanish. Okay, you know, I, I knew I knew taco enchilada, <laughs> but that was about it. Yeah. So uh, I preached in a meeting. I you got me on another subject. I got to touch on. Okay, I was preaching in a meeting in Trinidad. In one of the remote villages, Hindus, converting Hindus like crazy. And so uh, this guy came over from Venezuela. I met him, Luis Garcia. And he was uh, very happy to be there with us and just visiting. And so during my sermon, which was on the crucifixion, he was crying. And I thought, my, touched his heart more than I thought I was going to. When it was all over, I said, Luis, I saw that you were crying. And uh, I guess the message about the crucifixion, Jesus just touched your heart, and my sermon just brought tears to your eyes. He said, I didn't even listen to your sermon. <laughs> I said, well, then why were you crying? He said, I was looking around, how many Christians you got over here? And we have eight in Caracas, a city of four million people. And on this island of Trinidad, you got one million. And you got how many members of the church? 5,000 plus? And I thought, Wow. I told myself, I'm going to get somebody to come over there. Don't worry. And I started working on it. About six months, I put my article in the Gospel Advocate, you know, <laughs> get somebody to go over there. Nobody yeah. would go. So I announced at one of our big lectureships in Trinidad that my wife and I would be leaving. And I talked to Kelly. I was married, but I'd met her on a campaign down there. And we were married. And I said, we're moving to Venezuela across the bay, short distance. And uh, but we were going over there. I didn't even speak Spanish. And so everybody that was there that had been supporting our work in Trinidad thought I had just lost it, and they couldn't believe that I was going to do that. And I said, well, no one, no one else is going. And, you know, Luis came over and cried, we got to do something for the work in Venezuela. Eight members in a nation of four million? Uh, that's not going to work. And so we're moving. And I lost some support because of that, but it didn't matter anyway because I wasn't going to take the support away from the work in Trinidad and carry it with me over to Venezuela. So I had to go out and raise money again to be able to go to Venezuela. 
and new support, new supporters. And that worked out probably real well anyway because yeah. I, I did not make the old ones real happy when I told them I was leaving. <laughs> but um, How long were you in uh, the Caribbean? I was in the Caribbean a total of, uh, let's see, it was it would have been uh, nine and a half years all. Nine that was all there was. But we left churches everywhere, and uh, uh, it, it's uh, it's amazing. I go back, and I don't hardly know anybody. People ask me, hey, first trip to Trinidad, you like it here? You know, and, uh, yeah, I love it. It's real sweet. <laughs> Good country. Yeah. And members of the church. And there's a school of preaching now in San Fernando, Trinidad. So anyway, I, uh, I really, you know, was sad to leave. It was real hard to leave, but I knew I needed to go. And so I needed to learn Spanish real quick. And so I went to Berlitz School in Houston and studied uh, six full hours a day for a full month before we moved over to Caracas. And uh, that was an experience. I remember the first Sunday, that uh, third Sunday, actually, that I was there, I was asked to preach in Spanish. <laughs> and uh, we had this nurse that was a member of the church, one of the eight, and uh, so I, I thought, boy, uh, I'll see how this goes over. And I wrote out notes and everything, and I preached in Spanish. And so uh, I know she cried. And I never did figure out if she was crying because she was thinking, oh, look what they've sent us after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even speak Spanish. and <laughs> This is not what we expected, you know. Or if she was really excited about the fact that I was preaching about the church and how it grew in the beginning in the book of Acts and that we were going to have to do that. I said, I'm coming from a church that's, you know, thousands strong and we're coming over here, you know, and uh, I don't plan to go another 20 years, which is how long the church had existed there and have eight more members, 16. Wow. No, we're going to grow. And uh, I thought maybe she cried because she liked the message that finally we're going to get somewhere. So anyway, I stayed there, and that's what we did. And we started working with the church in Caracas and then uh, converting people in the interior. And we did the same thing we'd done in the Caribbean. You convert somebody, and then he's got a grandmother or an uncle or a best friend in another town. Well, then you make an appointment to go over there and convert them, and then you go back and visit them, and then you take people out of the work in Caracas and send them out there. And it just grew. It grew up to about 60 in a pretty short time. About I think that was about uh, probably, I say a short time, 15 years. We had that many congregations scattered across the country, but we had preachers in those churches. So 60 churches across the country. Right. And uh, we started out with the idea of having a school of preaching. That came up, and I realized that we were growing just unbelievably fast. And then when we started the school of preaching and had everybody come into Caracas and sit in the students' desk and uh, look at the blackboard and read their textbook, go home, do their homework, and I had to go home do my studies to be able to teach the next day. And uh, the question I had to ask myself was, who's preaching? Who's teaching? Who's evangelizing? We're all in a classroom situation now. So the school, I came in one day and I told the guy who had really 
brought up the idea of having a school. I said, I think we've made a mistake. And uh, I've got a suggestion for the school of preaching. And he said, what's the suggestion? I said, let's shoot it in the head. <laughs> and, get back, and get back on the street. Yep. And go see the people and convert their friends and their relatives in other cities and in other countries. Colombia. We were getting into Colombia and other places. And so that's how we scattered. Okay. But we, we did offer continuous training by going and being with the people, by giving them materials to read and study and teaching them how to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, the second Timothy two, two. And we, we, we just stayed on it. And that's when, uh, Elvia, who was a good friend, my wife converted her. Uh, when somebody said something about the preachers in the church uh, there in Caracas, she said, what preachers? And they said, well, the preachers of the church, of the congregations. And she said, oh, you're talking about Bob Brown's kindergarten? <laughs> and that was supposed to be an insult. Mm-hmm. But I took it as a compliment and, and as a, an insight into what we need to be doing. We need to be having these kindergartens that have kindergartens that have kindergartens. And so I told all the preachers that we were training you need to start getting some young men that have just been recently baptized and put them in your kindergarten. And you need to have a kindergarten. Now, in Venezuela, that's a joke, and everybody understands it, but everybody's serious about it, that all the preachers need to have their own kindergartens. And the ones that are coming into that kindergarten need to plan for the day when they can form their own kindergarten and train more and more workers. And that's why today, when uh, when I go back to Venezuela or go over to Colombia or down to Ecuador or somewhere else uh, in Latin America, uh, people ask me if it's my first time to ever come there or not. And uh, I guess they're still judging my Spanish or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I tell them, no, I've been here before. This is pretty nice. I like it, you know. Yeah. And uh, they don't even know that, you know, there were eight members when I started. And it, this is the guy that came in and set up a kindergarten. But uh, we still have that same concept, and we and our preachers are all training preachers. They're starting new congregations, and then they go out. Just recently, to give you an example, uh, Jose Pineda was one of the first guys that I worked with. He was from Maracaibo, far across the country from where I was, and uh, I converted him and his dad and uh, well, I don't think I baptized him. Somebody else did, but I converted his dad and the rest of his family, and uh, they all became faithful Christians. And now he's one of our best speakers, best preachers in the country of Venezuela. But uh, uh, he knows the importance of having a kindergarten. And so we got a guy, Vladimir. Uh, his daddy must have been communist because he's Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> 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 and so, uh, anyway, this guy uh, started working with Jose, at taking correspondence courses and so forth. He got ready, and so Jose said, come on in, and invited him into his kindergarten. And now, Jose has moved to Valera and working with the church there, and Vladimir's gone over to the, that congregation, and they have about 120 members. But uh, there's another little town, Escoche, uh, kind of an odd Spanish name, out in the countryside. And just about two months ago, three months ago, 
Vladimir went out there and uh, converted some people, and he's already training some of them to preach. And who knows where that'll go? But nobody in that little congregation knows me, and that's good. It is beautiful that they do not know me, and I want to keep it that way. And I think that I just I know that your people that are listening to this don't know, but I took a fall just about two weeks ago and tried to tear up the sidewalk here in Denver with my forehead and had a concussion and had uh, cranial bleeding and all that sort of thing. And uh, so uh, sometimes we we get involved in our work in a way we don't want to. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And having a concussion and not being able to get out and go and do is one of them. COVID also helped mm-hmm. because I couldn't go in with the COVID restrictions. Before that, it was the dictator that had, Maduro who had taken over Venezuela after Chavez. And I knew Chavez and his uh, minister. And, and that's one of the things I did. I always tried to meet these people when I had a chance and let them know that we're decent people and we're sensible people and you don't need to fear us. And uh, I got to know Chavez. I got to know his minister of defense, who was a real good friend of mine, uh, Bodwell, General Bodwell. And then when they had a falling out, Bodwell was put in prison and he died last year. I think COVID had something to do with it. But we've had had, uh, governmental opposition, which kept us off the air. Uh, and, you know, not able to have the TV programs we had before and things like that. Uh, and then we've had uh, uh, the COVID uh, situations, one, uh, combined with the governmental regulations. It's just made it very difficult. So I'm going to be less known than ever before, and the work will go on and go on and go on. But then I had a son who wanted to be a missionary, and his wife, uh, they went to Harding, and she said, well, let's go someplace where your dad hadn't started a church. <laughs> That's a little well, slim. <laughs> I've, wor- I've, worked, I've worked in several parts in Russia, in Kazakhstan. We started the church in Almaty there, and uh, it was formerly a Baptist church. Now it's the Lord's church. But uh, in, in a lot of places, overseas, more than just there. And then people that we've converted, especially now, there's about 20 congregations in con- in, tr- in uh, countries where I've never been that have been started by Venezuelans who were escaping the trouble they were having in Venezuela with the dictator and had gone and started works in other areas and doing a marvelous job. Some of them know me, some don't know me. That's fine. The thing is, I just hope they keep building up their congregations by having more and more kindergartens and training preachers to train preachers to train preachers. So that's been kind of where we've been. And now I I came to Denver because this congregation was willing to give me all the time I wanted to do all the mission work I want to do. And I do coordinate a lot of the funding of the preachers in Venezuela and in a few other places. And uh, it's because my friends know me. And we've been working together now for 50 years. And so it's time, you know, that uh, we have an opportunity to work as a team. And we do. We do. And uh, I thank uh, the teachers at Harding that have been so good. Ava Conley and her husband, Bill, are just marvelous, helped in campaigns through the years and uh, have done a lot to communicate with our supporters when we were overseas. 
And that's important, to have a team effort, uh, not just the locals there, but even people here in the States that can cooperate with you. And so I agree with you guys on the idea of the church building is not the answer. Uh, all over Latin America, as well as in Europe, and you go anywhere, you'll find empty church buildings. But uh, we need more hearts that are full of Christ everywhere and people that are devoted. And I'm not against having a church building. If you offer me one this week, I'll take it for us right here in Denver. <laughs> but um, The church it, is the people. It's the, not the building. I know. Yeah. It's exactly right. And, and you can have a church building without the people being who they're supposed to be, and uh, then you can have just the opposite too. Uh, the, the building doesn't determine whether the people are going to be devoted in their Christian faith or not. That's up to the individual, and uh, that's what we've always depended upon. So I have a question between yeah. the Caribbean and then like Central America, Venezuela. Like, what was the differences in those two missions? Because you were full time for both of them. Yeah. Like, so there was obviously there was a difference. Yeah. What in those? the Caribbean, uh, you had. Initially, in most of the islands where I went, you had all the denominational groups, including the Anglican Church and, you know, all the ones you know here in the States. And uh, yet the people had a great desire to study. Uh, the people in Barbados were the most literate people on the planet at the time I went down to work in the Caribbean. They would read anything. They would read anything you give them pick up a newspaper off the floor and read it. Just they were studious, and the whole world knew that they were. And uh, that helped us a lot to be able to get literature into their hands and know that they were studying and growing. And then we use the system that I've described where the people we convert convert somebody else who converts somebody else, and, and it just keeps rolling. But when I went to Trinidad, it was entirely different. That's why it was so receptive in Trinidad because we had Hindus, we had Muslims, we had Christians in the generic sense of mm -hmm. denominationalism, uh, people that believed in Christ. But uh, then we had the church itself, you know. And But the, the thing that was different is that uh, the people that were Hindus knew that they were not Christians. And Muslims knew they were not Christians. And so we could really deal with them, and we converted a lot of them. A lot of our preachers are formerly Hindus or Muslims, and uh, very faithful. Mahesh Bissendat is one of the ones that you know I communicate a lot with in Trinidad. And so that opened that door up big time because when you walk in and you, you tell people, I am a believer in Christ, then that you have an affinity there with them that's just natural. And if you tell them you're not, then you get to deal with the evidences in favor of Jesus being the Son of God and not just somebody that came along and deceived the world. Uh, and so they loved to study. They loved to learn. They, they wanted the facts. They wanted to reason through all that they were hearing. And that helped, really, to convert a lot of people. Uh, and so that was the difference between the two, having that mixture. And then it didn't hurt to every now and then pick up a little something on the side like muje buklagaje. Uh, which any of you uh, folks that are Hindus that are listening, don't worry, I got, I got something to eat already today. Uh, <laughs> I'll take I could go into their it. houses and <laughs> hit them with that. As a matter of fact, I baptized a, guy, a young man 
who is Hindu, and his family's talking about sending him back right now to India to get him away from our influence. But uh, uh, he was shocked, and a lot of people are when I pull out that one phrase I know, that's all I know, which means I'm hungry. Uh, I'm really starving to death. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's important to associate with the people, learn their ways, their customs, their dress, and everything else. And uh, we've always tried to do that. And we didn't have to force ourselves. It was, it was a joy. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So that and was the Caribbean side. That was the Caribbean side. And then you go over to, you know, El Salvador, Colombia. You go into Latin America. Yeah, Venezuela. They, they don't know what their church really teaches. They do not know for the most part. And when you begin to reveal to them the essence of their faith that they supposedly believe in, then they, whoa, I didn't know that. And so they became people that wanted to know the truth about their own lives and their own uh, religious leaders. And that gave us an open door, just beautiful open door that we were able to take advantage of. And, uh, Rusty and his wife decided that they wanted to go somewhere where I hadn't done anything. And so they, there were a lot of places they couldn't go, but they found out that I had never, ever preached in China. I'd gone to the border. I'd talked to Chinese on the border, but I'd never gone into China, never started a church in China. So they went to Danjiangko, China, to start a work. And they had some success there. Uh, not as much as you'd have in the Caribbean or in uh, the Latin American world, but uh, Rusty and his wife and their children stayed there, Brittany and the kids, they, they stayed there uh, for a little while. Well, they, the kids didn't. They came along later, but then when they got to Ecuador, which they decided to do next, since Rusty already spoke Spanish, he grew up speaking Spanish, all my kids do, uh, except for Natalie, who was adopted and. Uh, she, she's the one that everybody says, oh, she speaks Spanish, right? And I said, no, she's the only one that really doesn't. Uh, and she just didn't want to learn Spanish. She wanted to learn English. And so as we moved back into the States, she's hung tight with that. But all the boys, uh, four boys, they all, all speak Spanish. As a matter of fact, Marshall's my, uh, second son. And he, he's taught his little bitty girls, uh, to speak Spanish from, right out of the crib so uh we're blessed to have that you know influence and all of my sons have preached they lead song services and so forth very talented very talented and i've been blessed really blessed and then they go in and work with the people i've worked with in the past and it's been an exciting life you know i tell people uh as i go through all of this i always i sit and think about brown be careful be careful you're sounding more like Daniel four every day. Nebuchadnezzar, look what I did. Yeah. And uh, God did it. I didn't do it. But he, he let me be involved. And so I am so indebted to God that I am grateful for all the people that have been converted in all these different countries and the unbelievable stories. And if you think you've heard all of the Bob Brown stories, uh, you can ask my kids. They'll tell you, no, 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 you don't want to go there. Uh, it's just too many situations. They love to hear the ones about the guy that put the pistol under my throat and threatened to shoot my head off. Let's hear that one. Oh, well, it's just. You can't just, bring it up and then not tell us the story. Okay, I'll tell you the story. I was, I was in the church in Caracas, 
And uh, we had a metal door on the back that had a little button you had to push on the inside to be able to get you in. And uh, it was locked. And so I hear somebody rattling the bars. They, they could see inside, but they couldn't come inside. And this guy was making a lot of noise. So I turned to one of our members there, Carlos Abello, who is now an elder of the Lord's Church in Sacramento, California. And right now is down in uh, Caracas again because of his sister being severely ill. But anyway, I turned to Carlos and another guy, Francisco, that was sitting right beside him, and I said, you guys go find out who's rattling the door back there while we're trying to have this Bible study on Wednesday night. They didn't come back. So I got up and went back out there and check on them. And uh, I see they're talking to this guy. So I hit the button, open the door, go out, and say, so what's up? And Carlos tells me, oh, this is one of our neighbors. He lives here in this same building and so forth. And uh, he just came by. But I saw under his coat that he had a pistol. So I told told Carlos, I said, "Uh, uh, yeah, you and Francisco going back inside. I'll, I'll talk to our friend here. And so I stayed out there with him. I wasn't going to let him go in that church building under any set of circumstances. We had about 80 people that night. And so uh, I started talking to him. So, hey, let me get you a cup of coffee or something. I figured he needed it. And there was a little delicatessen just outside the door of the building in which we were meeting. So we walked down the hallway and out and went around. And I uh, said, what would you like to drink? Uh, You want some coffee? And he came out with a real nasty curse word or two. And uh, I said, well, yeah, we'll, we'll forget that. Just what do you want to drink, you know? And he did the same thing again. And I said, hey, man, we're neighbors. You don't need to be talking like that, you know? And he was obviously drinking. And so, while, and I'm watching while he's standing there. I'm not taking my eye off of him because I know what's under his coat. And so I saw him reach across with his uh, right hand, and when he did, I knew where he was going, and he grabbed that pistol out from under his coat and pulled it out, okay? Well, I was ready, so I grabbed him by his wrist and raised his uh, gun straight up in the air where he could shoot up in the air if he wanted to, but not me, and definitely wasn't going to get to the members of the church, so he uh, he started cursing and carrying on. It was a scene. And it's just the two of us out there, you know, without our coffee. And uh, <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> that guy's the important part of the story. <laughs> yeah, I know. Got to mention the coffee. <laughs> but um, uh, after a little while, he wouldn't talk to me. I said, well, let's go on back inside. I said, but you frightened me when you pulled out your pistol, you know. And uh, uh, I'm going to put your arm down now. And you just relax. We're neighbors. We're friends. We'll go inside. We'll talk. So I put his arm down, and he took one step backwards, and ching, ching, and I saw a bullet pop out and roll down the sidewalk. And I'm thinking, well, that answers one of my questions. It was loaded, <laughs> uh, and is, I'm sure. And so uh, he said, inside, I'll follow you. I said, sure, let's go. So I went inside, but I wasn't going to go all the way back down to that door that go, goes into the auditorium. No way. Uh so when I got to a, the staircase and halfway down the hallway that goes upstairs, I just plopped down 
just threw myself down on the stairs. Oh, I'm so tired. I've had a long day, all that sort of thing. And um, I'm rattling my mouth, just trying to keep him occupied. And uh, he puts that pistol up under my neck, up under my throat, <laughs> and says, uh, you know, if I pull this trigger, you'll go blah, 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 you know, and stuck his tongue out at me and all that sort of thing, you know. And I said, yeah, that's right. And I was looking at the pistol, looking down, you know, and uh, I noticed it had a white sort of handle on it, you know. And I said, is that pearl on your pistol on the handle there? And he and he pulled it away from me, looked at it, and said, I don't know. I said, well, if it is, that probably is worth a lot more than you know that it's worth. And we talked about his pistol for a little while, and he didn't have it under my throat anymore. <laughs> and I was kind of glad for that. And we talked about 10, 15 minutes, and he says, uh, well, I'm tired. I'm going to go upstairs and go to bed. I said, well, I enjoyed talking to you. Have a good evening. And uh, he went up the stairs. I went into the church building, and I walked to the front of the building, and I said, trust me. I know you want to ask questions, but you can't ask questions. I want everybody to stand up. Stand up. And everybody stood up. 80 people. And these are members of the Church of Christ. They don't ever do that with a preacher. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so uh, they all stood up. And I said, I want you to walk out of this building. I don't want you to talk to each other about anything at all. And I want you to go straight home. Trust me. And they all marched out just like little ants in a row. And I'm thinking, and I looked around at Carlos, who was the last one still there, and I said, they, they did what I told them to do. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, but they were gone. Everything. <laughs> yeah, we closed up, locked down. It was only two weeks later that he chased another guy all the way to the top floor, 11 floors, shooting all the way, trying to hit him. And uh, that's when his brothers, two of whom were senators, can imagine the consequences if I'd have hit him or something, and I had every opportunity. But uh, the the two you know two brothers were senators, and uh, they took the gun away from him. I saw him after that on different occasions and so forth. But there were a lot of stories like that. That's the stories that my kids like to hear, <laughs> you know. And uh, adventures and missions, right? That, yeah, <laughs> and that's exactly right. <laughs> a little different angle, yeah. But uh, but we had a lot of lot of situations like that, yeah. and God carried us through. And it wasn't because I was smart or strong, or you know, I depended on the Lord and looked for His counsel and His wisdom, not mine. And it worked, and God's blessed us, and we've had a Happy, wonderful life. The wife I have, who's upstairs right now, so we can carry on here. Yeah, is is a jewel. How did you meet her? You said she was... came on a campaign. Okay, and when she came on the campaign, I spotted her. <laughs> oh, I thought, yes, Lord, <laughs> I've been praying about this, and now you have answered my prayer. And long, long flowing hair. You know, it's just. Uh, beauty still is. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not, uh, <laughs> but uh, she is, and uh, the mother of all my children, and just you know, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, a great mother, great wife. Uh, I go to bed at night and pray, and then I go to sleep, and she comes out of the closet. Who knows how much later? 
having read her Bible, having prayed, and all this sort of thing. And she doesn't even like me to mention that. She gets upset when I do. So we'll just let you have it. But, um, but uh, she's very devout, and she teaches a lot of ladies' classes. She's converted a lot of people that you wouldn't believe. One of the things that impressed me most about her on that first campaign was she kept going out and teaching people up in the mountains and so forth, and she had a lot of people, bearded guys, I mean, Look like look like Fidel Castro, you know, and she'd be coming back. This one wants to be baptized. You need to baptize this one. You need to baptize that one. I'm thinking this is going to be easy from here on out. And uh, she has friends in the whole world, almost on every continent, that are wonderful Christian people, and a lot of it can be attributed to her devotion to God. And uh, she puts up with me. That's a lot. And uh, seriously, I'm telling you, that's a lot. Uh, and uh, the kids are all wonderful. And I, I know I've contributed something to that, but I think Kelly's done a whole lot more than I have. And we're, we're blessed. We're blessed, blessed. So on Sunday morning, uh, it could be Juwan, the oldest, uh, preaching or leading song service or whatever. Uh, or it could be, you know, Marshall who's a little more timid about preaching, but he, boy, when he does say something, he's always smart and very on target, and he gets on all my Zoomed Bible classes and is very effective. Wonderful father for his two little girls. And um, Rusty is down in Ecuador, and they started with one congregation. Now they've got three. And uh, kind of like what we've done here, uh, uh, and, and I hadn't even talked about that, but... You know, I went and got Steve because I wanted him to be the one to take my place here. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve Kuro. But, um, and he's going to preach for me Sunday, but I had to break his arm almost to get him to do it, but he's coming. But uh, he was out in San Diego, not really using his talents. And his brother in law, Alan, uh, who's up at uh, Northwest, is, you know, a, uh, another wonderful preacher. And, they both speak Spanish, and they've gone on campaigns with me, and they came to Denver because I came here, and they followed me and wanted to be a part of what we're doing, the discipleship thing again, you know. And uh, now they won't have anything to do with me. They're smarter than me and a lot better <laughs> preachers. But uh, but we've had a lot of people come here into the city. Uh, Michelle Golf is doing a lot in women's ministry uh, going around teaching ladies' classes in all the churches in the country and overseas as well, and she speaks perfect Spanish. And uh, she came out of our ministry, and uh, we can just name others. Uh, the Forbeses went to uh, be missionaries in Bolivia from here. Uh, Kevin Baldwin went down to uh, preach for the Silverton Church of Christ. And uh, he's a real mountain man, huge beard and so forth. I mean, big. You got a little beard there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to grow it. But, uh, <laughs> well, but, but he's a mechanic, and he's got his own business down there now and preaching, having a wonderful time. And we've had just so many others that we've been able to get into ministry who then didn't stay with us but went somewhere else and are doing a great job, and we're glad for that. But uh, somebody's got to eventually stay around and help me out here. <laughs> well, see, but, that's that's where I was when asked the question. So typically we hear about, like, mentorships. Yeah. We hear, you know, this person guided me, and that it seems like a lot of your focus was on creating, being the mentor to create other mentors. What caused you to 
go down that direction into necessity. You know, uh, the the mother invention when uh, you go out and convert a bunch of people and they live too far away, you you can't go over there every weekend. You find out who out there uh, can read, and you go from there. And uh, we've got a lot of people who have gone into ministry after being trained out of necessity. We needed somebody desperately in that position at that particular time. And we don't, we don't hesitate now just to say, you got to do this, brother. We really need you here. Please. And, uh, boy, I tell you what, Christians are just the most wonderful people in the world for many reasons, but that's one of them, is that uh, when you suggest that there's something that needs to be done and you can do it, and uh, can you start Sunday? And they do. It's kind of like me being asked on Wednesday night after being baptized Sunday, will you lead the song service when I don't know any of the songs? You know, duh. Um, but it, it works. It worked on me, and I've used it through the years for all these other people that have gone into ministry. And uh, I, I pray that all the people that I have worked with like that will do that for others. I was at Harding for a year when I came back to the States, and uh, picked up a, another degree. I got my master's in education and all that sort of thing. But uh, I uh, worked with people like Alan and, you know, got to know him real well and Steve. And then they came out here and they're at Parker Northwest. And uh, then Michelle's got her ministry and going all over the world. And just so many people have just scattered and are doing their own thing. But it's because that's what happened to me, and that's how I became a minister. Uh, it was Jerry going back to Pascagoula for the Christmas holiday and saying, you got to go and preach at this church out there because I've got to go make some money to pay my tuition next semester. And he was married and had, uh, I think, one or two kids, and so uh, I did it. And the people were gracious and said they liked me, uh, and I don't want God to condemn him for lying, but uh, <laughs> I had I had serious doubts about that. But uh, especially when I said in conclusion and repeated the same sermon twice. But uh, that that's that's how it, it just works. It works. Anything else is ju- you can just be the pastor and run the church by yourself uh, or the bull elder or whatever, and that doesn't work. Uh, that's a dead end road, yeah. dead end road. The scripture, uh, Aaron advises Moses, oh, delegate, yeah. delegate. Yeah. Don't handle it all yourself. You can't do it. You'll burn out. You'll, you can't handle it. Delegate it, to the people that are ready and waiting, right there to do it. And it's so wonderful to see my boys grow up and go into ministry and things like that. And they have. And Danny is a beautiful singer. He's had a band. Juwan had a band. Danny's had a band. And the other boys have participated in activities like that. So, you know, just secular music. But uh, then that they know music. They know music, and they can sing. And uh, they write songs. They've written hymns. And I'm very proud of them. But uh, you wouldn't want to do that with just your own kids if you could do it with thousands of people. And so you just take the same principle and apply it to other people. And that's how... The church grows. And um, here in uh, Denver, it's a little harder than in some places. But uh, we've baptized. I had a, I had a Bible class this morning with uh, six teenagers that are all from the same mom and dad. Uh, 
uh, down your way, Canyon City area. And uh, they're, they're wonderful kids. Oh, man, they're just so fantastic. And uh, I've talked to uh, some of the people up at Bear Valley, and Cole, who is their oldest child, a male, will be going to school there, Lord willing. And you think I won't use him? <laughs> you better believe it. Already am doing that. And we have a lot of men in our church that preach. I told somebody recently, I said, come to our church on Sunday morning, and you'll see that there's a, there always going to be at least one teenager doing something. Uh, we just do that. We expect that. It's programmed in. If I don't do it, somebody else does it. But it happens. And that's how people get to be leaders and how the churches grow and multiply. And that's how it's got to be done. Uh, I really liked initially what they were doing in Boston with the Boston movement. But then they, it became abusive. As a matter of fact, Steve Johnson, who was Kip McKean's right-hand man in that thing, lived with me nine months before he came back to the States and let Kip talk him into using a lot of unwholesome uh, pressure to get people to do what they wanted done so the church would grow faster. Well, they grew fast, but they didn't do it in the same way I would have done it because uh, I would never, ever have put that kind of pressure on people and make their Christian experience a horrible nightmare, uh, which is what's happened. And so uh, I believe I believe in doing what they've done, but with a kind heart and a, a desire to turn people into disciples, real disciples, not their definition of a disciple. And so that's what we do. Yeah, you talk about the difference between the Caribbean and like the Caracas and yeah. all that. Those are, what about the foreign mission field compared to here in Denver? Uh, the foreign mission field. Well, here uh, people are not as open to even listening to what you're trying to tell them in the beginning. They're not as hungry for information and education, spiritual education. And consequently, it's difficult. But uh, my son, Danny, started studying with a friend of his whose name is Grant. And uh, I won't tell you the name of the company they work for, but they both had good positions and they were young and just starting out. And uh, he began to share his faith with uh, Grant, and uh, then Grant became a Christian. Danny baptized him in Jawan's hot tub over at his house, and uh, that was wonderful. Enjoyed that. But then I met one Sunday morning Grant's parents who came to church to be with us. Wonderful, wonderful couple. Well, they were more my age, so I jumped on that in a hurry, and uh, I had the privilege of going to their house, to their hot tub, and baptizing them just about a month ago. And uh, I got a chance to go to their house on Tuesday night this week and spent probably three hours. And we went through Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel, you know, uh, story of the beasts that he saw in his vision as well as the kingdoms. And, and the conclusion, uh, it says that this kingdom that is being established, mentioned here twice in great detail, uh, and even mentioning the kingdoms that will come before it, uh, that uh, that it was something that was prophesied that would come to pass, and it did. You can read it in any his history of the world or civilization in any library in Denver, and it's not even biblical material. It's just a fact that there was Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and then Romans and then 
a fifth kingdom. And I, I've preached a series of sermons on the fifth kingdom because it's not called the fifth kingdom. It's not numbered, but it, it, it was the fifth. It was the one that will come after all these others have been wiped out. And uh, it says it will never be destroyed. And I asked, you know, uh, Teresa and Nixon, I said, uh, okay, so it will never be destroyed. We got that. Uh, so when, when did it disappear? When did it die? When did it was, you know, destroyed? And Nixon quick. He's, and we'll treat this too. But they both came back. It can't. Why not? Because the Bible says it'll never be destroyed. Oh, so when was it destroyed? Well, never. I said, well, then what's the logical conclusion? And both of them came to the same answer. It still exists. Can you be a part of that kingdom? And if so, what is it? It's the church. It's the church. And uh, I studied with them for three and a half hours. I had to apologize later. It was just, we went late into the night, okay? <laughs> and then Wednesday night, they were back with us, chatting again with a group of people on Bible study on Wednesday night. Uh, we started that back in COVID, and we haven't given it up. We're not going to. We really like using the Internet. We really do. And people can come home from work, and they don't have to get in the car, get dressed up, eat, and then drive, and then drive back. And uh, So we're finding that to be a really good tool. Um, makes, makes it easy for everybody to get on. And they don't know that you don't have your shoes on. Uh, you know, <laughs> or socks, or socks. You'd be sitting on a pig. We don't yeah, you be sitting on pigs, just like the Caribbean. But um, you know uh, that we. I have those studies with them, those three, and uh, they're reaching out to other people. And uh, Grant called me last night, and we had a two-hour Bible study on uh, wholesome speech, uh, looking at Philippians four. I mean, Philippians, Ephesians 4, excuse me. And so, you know, he, he called me and had a question. Well, I got the young people down in Canyon City and their mom, and I got, you know, this, this couple and their son, and Danny's working with him. And so the family is working together. And we've got others that have been brought into the kingdom just recently. And uh, they're able to do a good job, and it doesn't all depend on me. But then they are going to have to have their kindergartens too. And that's what's happening. There are people in the church now. Uh, Jim and Dallas are two of our members up in years. And uh, they've got a Bible study going. And Dan and Sue are on every Wednesday night now. Uh, they're not able to drive over. And when the weather gets better, they will be able to. But uh, Jim and Dallas are reaching out to them. And that's beautiful. And uh, they're excited about telling me about who they're studying with. So I find that it's, you have to work through relationships, and it's harder to get a relationship established here. Whereas overseas, you introduce somebody, and you say, my name's Bob Brown. They say, oh, yeah, I want to be your friend. You know, and it's not that way here. It's a little different. So it takes a little more coaching to get them ready to study. But it does happen, and that's why we've had conversions. And uh, I baptized of those kids down in Canyon City, four of them now, I think. And um, their mom was already a Christian. And I baptized the dad. Uh, and so those are the things that are going on that he, here in Denver even. And they do work. Now, uh, 
I've got others I haven't been so successful with. Yeah. And I'm not going to mention that on, a, yeah. on this recording. <laughs> but uh, there's some people I really wish I could, you know, finalize their conversion. But uh, they're reluctant. And yeah. so you well, find that everywhere. How do you how do you deal with that, the struggles of, you know, necessarily being able to convert someone or putting so much time into something and then it I put a lot of time into it as long as they're putting a lot of time into it. Okay. If I'm having to force the issue and after many tries they're not coming around, I, I just patiently and lovingly back out, you know, just quit offering so much of my time because I've got other people that want to study. And I feel like as long as I've got somebody who wants to study with me, I had Kelly had a situation like that in Trinidad of all places. Uh, my wife went out and studied with this girl, and she says, "I just can't get her to become a Christian. I don't know what to do." And I said, "Well, what do you want?" She said, "I'd like you to go with me and see if you can help." And so I did, and I went with her, and we studied with her, and. Uh, I told about all the wonderful things that God had waiting for her. Her name would be written in Lance Book of Life. She'll have a crown waiting for her. And, yeah, all of her sins will be taken away. She'll be pure and white like the snow and all of those wonderful things. And same thing Kelly had told her, and uh, she wasn't ready to be baptized. Well, maybe, maybe the next time when you come. And she was young and just as cute as could be, real sweet little girl, uh, probably around 18, and uh, she uh, maybe maybe when you come back, you know. I said, but, oh, that's a problem. And she said, why? I said, I won't ever be back. I won't come back. I said, I've told you all about all the treasures of heaven. I opened up the chest and let you see everything in the box, and you didn't respond positively, uh, like you just kind of, wrinkled your nose up and said, I, you know, I don't think I want that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'll wait for another occasion. And I said, you don't deserve it, and I'm not going to give it to you. So Kelly can come back if she wants to, but I won't. Unless, of course, sometime maybe like tonight or tomorrow, you call me up and say, Brother Bob, I apologize. I realize I've made a mistake, and I want to become a Christian. Will you come baptize me? I said, man, I'll tear up the road getting over there in a hurry. Uh, but no, when I, when I tell you all these wonderful things that God has waiting for you and you turn your nose up at it, no way I'm not going to give you a chance to do that again. That's not nice. And we left. Kelly was a little bit upset with me, but uh, <laughs> you can imagine. But she called that night. She said, I made my mind up. I do want to be baptized. And uh, the last time I talked to her, she had two sons, and they were both preaching. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's just a testament to show don't be discouraged. Just plant the seed, and That's it may right. not be you that is the one that you know gets the till the till the soil, so to speak. That's uh, right. But, uh, That's right. Uh, you your job is just to plant it, and don't be discouraged when you don't get the outcome you're looking for. Oh no! And and the thing about it is, the world, you know, like you know, my mom used to tell me about you know dating or uh and i've heard other parents say the same thing to their kids you know uh that's not the only fish in the sea you know you think you i've got to marry this girl i got to marry that guy and whatever the case is you know uh there's this resistance you know and we get discouraged but uh hey there are a lot of fish in the sea and uh, if you can't convert somebody then maybe you need to look for a, a different somebody to study with 
and then you'll have more success. You got to go through them. You got to go through them. And you always need to have a hot tub so you're ready to baptize. A hot tub. <laughs> now, when you don't have a church building, you better have a member that has a hot tub. Or you, you go out to uh, Chatfield yeah. to the lake it's cold. and freeze yourself to death. Yeah, we've done that too. And yeah. so thank you so much for letting me tell these little stories and so forth. And there's a lot more. So somebody that's uh, lost their wits and needs to have another story toward, told to them, just have them call me. <laughs> yeah. And I'll give them more because there's a lot more to be told. Yeah. We but, really appreciate your time for sitting down and talking to us. It's been very encouraging to hear your story, all the work you've done for the kingdom. And we're really appreciative that God's been really good to me. And to Kelly, to all of us, uh, we've been so, so blessed. Uh, and it, it is, and I acknowledge this fully by his wisdom, his power, his grace, that all of this happened. And uh, I just thank God that he let me be involved in some way, you know. It's, it's just too good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate you guys and what you're doing. we